Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably, hopefully, interested in the bread and butter of the Urban Institute, and that's research. You can see research everywhere, in the many pages of PDFs of reports or the numbers and projections that appear in debates on Capitol Hill or in the media. And research organizations like the Urban Institute churn out these findings daily. The thing is, good research requires hard work and complex tools, and in general, it's complicated. It often takes a long time to move from question to answer, and it can take researchers months or years to produce the evidence that eventually elevates the debate. Sometimes it feels like research moves along at the speed of steam engine, when what we really want is speed rail. At Urban, we think a lot about what a more speed rail-y research process might look like and the potential trade-offs. In this episode, we're going to take a look at an event we called the Researchathon. It was our shot at trying to hack the research process and speed it up. But before we go there, let's make sure we're all on the same page with what the traditional research process looks like. The cool thing about being a researcher is you get to ask great questions and occasionally you get to answer them. And usually the answer is only one third of what you might want. That's Brett Theodos, a senior fellow at Urban. Like most researchers here, he wants to find ways that his work can inform the broader world. I get to study, I get to look at data, I get to write. And even most interestingly for me, I get to communicate knowledge to other people who are interested in it. Before you talk about findings, though, you have to start with the first step, formulating a research question like, why are some people healthier than others? Or how well is a program doing and how might it be improved? Once you have a question in mind, researchers then seek out partners who are also interested in finding the answer. So first, we got to find a funder that's interested in the idea. And that can take however long it takes, months, years or weeks sometimes. So from that point, most typically we're doing research design work first. So are the data sets the right data sets? What years can we get them for? How do we ask the questions in the right way if we're doing original data collection? Do we get approval from our institutional review board? At that point, you start doing the research. Here's Tina Stacy, a senior research associate at Urban. You start usually by creating a more um, detailed analysis plan, research design plan. You share that, you get feedback, and then you start doing the analysis, which could take a year, two years, three years, depending on whether it's, you know, a randomized control trial, which can take a long time, or just analyzing pre-existing data or working with community-based participatory research takes a very long time, as it should, because you really want to make sure that you're doing deep and meaningful engagement the entire time. So now, at this point in the research journey, it's time to analyze the data and tell the world about the findings. Urban researchers use a host of tools, statistical analysis, qualitative stuff like interviews and surveys, as well as models that use data to make predictions about the future. And then we write it up. And we write a draft, and we write another draft, and another draft, and eventually we get a final. And eventually we produce a blog and a cool podcast or a tweet, 
to better disseminate the work. And this is, of course, the picture of a rigorous research process. And it can take a while. By the time you finish the research, you still have a long pause between when the research is completed to when it gets out to the people who need it most. So really, in the in the longest process of this, it could be, you know, years and years and years. Sometimes it takes time for good reasons, and sometimes not so much. Programs take time to deliver an intervention, and sometimes it takes time to let things unfold in people's lives and see what the effects are. But sometimes... If we're more honest, the delays and the time in the research process is really due to us and our ability to sit down and focus on one thing and not so much truly the fault of the program that we're trying to understand or study. And there are implications for these delays. In one of my projects, it was six years before the academic publication came out from when we began. And by that point, you know, things have changed. Systems have changed. Policies have changed. The answers might not be quite as relevant. The questions might not be as quite as relevant. And it just takes so long to get stuff out there. So this is a tricky balance. We want to maintain the quality of the slow track traditional research. But we also want to make sure that whatever we find is relevant to the fast pace of the real world of policymaking. With this in mind, Brett and Tina wondered, could the research process be accelerated? There's this concept of a hackathon where people come together and produce something of social benefit in a day. What if we did a research-a-thon? What if we came together, the whole team, everybody can contribute, and we banged out a research product in a single day? I wanted to design something that could be participatory, that could be a little bit fun, because We like what we do, I think, most of the time, but also really get something done in a single day. So Urban's first research-a-thon was born. A handful of researchers trying to answer one research problem and publish their results all in one day. In some ways, it's just a wonky escape room exercise, right? Everyone working together in the same place towards a common goal. But on the other hand, it represents a pretty different way of going about our business. The first step, find a research question that would work under these time constraints. I propose that we look at the relationship between public and assisted housing. So housing subsidized through HUD for low-income households for rental assistance. To look at the relationship between where those um, households are located and where jobs exist. We use data from Snag, which is an online hourly job search engine. Snag is actually called Snag a Job. And they gave us data for free for us to do research on to analyze this thing called spatial mismatch, which is the distance between where um, job seekers live and where jobs exist. So, this idea being that, you know, particularly nowadays with housing affordability being quite challenging, I, like housing being unaffordable for most low income workers that a lot of folks are forced to live quite far from where job opportunities exist. And so we wanted to look at, you know, whether rental assistance through public housing and housing choice vouchers and those types of assistance help people live closer to job opportunities. So the basic question is, does public housing or housing assistance help low-income people live closer to jobs or place them farther away? And here's why that question matters. We know that living further from jobs can make you be unemployed longer, can lead to longer spells of unemployment, higher rates of unemployment. 
especially for these lower wage jobs, it might not be worth it to commute all the way across town for a, you know, a minimum wage job. You might not be making enough money to make that worth it. And particularly nowadays where we see lower income people in some high cost cities being pushed further and further from the city center, it's harder for people to access jobs. So clearly it's an important question, but it was also one that lent itself to an accelerated process. The team had worked with the data in the past, knew the literature, and keeping with our extended train metaphor, had gone down similar tracks in the past and thought they could answer it quickly. We had to do a lot of pre-thinking to make the day successful. We had to really be clear what question we were trying to answer. We had to do a decent amount of data prep work. Now, we didn't so much do it in light of this research question alone, but this was a building body of work on top of a data analysis and data set construction effort that we had already done. So we walked in the door having done a good amount of prep work. So the team had that head start. And another key question they had to consider, what would be the scope of their project? The researchathon team decided to study spatial mismatch across 15 different cities. For the data, the cities are called Metropolitan Statistical Areas, or MSAs. We looked at all of those MSAs that we had, looked at an average across all of them of how mismatch varies within each city between assisted households and other kind of similar households. And then we looked within each city so we could say which cities seem to be doing the best and which ones maybe had some areas for improvement. Everyone started by choosing a smaller subgroup they wanted to work with. So we had one team that was doing more qualitative work. So they were doing like literature reviews and trying to write the background and try to think through the theory of why we might see one way or the other with our results. We had one data cleaning team where they were prepping all the data, merging it and starting to the data cleaning and analysis team. We had another team that was just thinking about exactly what tables and output we should be making from the data analysis team. And then we had one, I think we called it like the creative team. We said, do whatever you want, come up with something creative. So they ended up going, walking over to a public housing building not too far from our office and taking some pictures and just observing the landscape. So the 13 members of the team approached these questions from several different angles, trying to provide a well-rounded view. And here's what they found. So we weren't sure which direction it would go. And what we did find was that public and assisted households actually lived further from net opportunities. So spatial mismatch was worse for households who were in public and assisted housing on average. There were some cities where they did better, but on average, they did worse than what we were defining as like a somewhat comparable comparison group of other folks who were extremely low income, but unassisted So they actually had uh, assisted households had worse spatial mismatch, which meant there were fewer open job opportunities within a reasonable commuting distance than other similar households. That's not to say that these households were choosing these neighborhoods for other reasons, which might make them better. But in terms of net jobs, opportunities within a reasonable commuting distance, that wasn't one of them. Tina also broke down the results based on the varying types of public housing we found that households in public housing fared the worst. They had the highest rates of spatial mismatch, which kind of went along with what we know from the literature. Those with housing choice vouchers did in between a little bit better than public housing, but still worse than unassisted households. So households that were in the project-based Section 8 program, they fared the best. So that's good, but still worse than unassisted households. And then by city, we found that some cities actually, on average, assisted households 
had lower spatial mismatch than unassisted. So Nashville, Minneapolis, Boston, and Seattle, they actually seem to be doing pretty well in terms of where their assisted households live compared to unassisted. And then most of the other cities, the assisted households had worse spatial mismatch than unassisted. The report also offers solutions to the problem they illuminated. Housing authorities and policymakers can try to locate assisted housing in areas with a surplus of jobs. They can focus on increasing access to affordable transportation, childcare, and food. And they can also enforce laws that prohibit discrimination against people using housing vouchers. So those are the key findings and prescriptions. But the research process itself also offers some takeaways. The big one, one day might be too ambitious to try to complete the research process. It was too much to try to do the copy editing and the technical review in a day. We need to allow those processes to play out a little bit longer and differently. We had the original goal of publishing that night. That didn't quite happen. We got most of it done that day. We did all the research, but taking the next couple of days to do code checks, to do reviews, to do um, rewriting and working on crafting the writing a little bit was definitely necessary. So the team didn't totally reach their goal of finishing a ready-to-publish product as quickly as they wanted. They finished a lot of hard work in that one day, but the quality assurance and review process revealed some wrinkles that needed ironing out and which ultimately shifted their initial results. Beyond those challenges, though, there were a lot of things that worked. What worked well in the day was not having to remember where you left off. So just literally moving through a question from beginning to end and writing it up. What was challenging for the team was trying to work in real time. I found it hard to write in a room with 11 other people talking and and focusing and emerging. So I actually had to step away outside of the room at a couple of points and just focus because it, it was hard for me to focus on writing with so much activity going on. I think it was really great for people to just be able to kind of like quickly ask a question, a clarifying question to somebody either on their team or another team and get the answer immediately rather than having to wait for an email or a phone call to go back and forth. So those quick back and forth were really great. And just because it was more in the moment did not mean that researchers were not cognizant of the larger context. We are researching important topics that are meaningful and we're not doing it just as a throwaway exercise. And so I think we try to keep that spirit with us in terms of the people that we are describing and talking about are real people. And even though we're going through this exercise of trying to do this in a day, we absolutely are in no way less honoring them and the lives and the challenges and struggles that are present there than it would be if we dragged out this question and studied it over 18 months. Brett and Tina see that the traditional research process has its speed bumps for a reason, but they also think the research-a-thon model offers a way to produce quicker analysis. I think what we can take away from this is that sprints work and that they can produce content and make rapid progress. A broader lesson that I take away from this that I'm now incorporating is that we're going to have sprints as project work teams, and we are going to focus for a dedicated period of time and push projects ahead in meaningful ways. And I don't think that means that the whole research study always has to be done in a single day. There's certain questions that doesn't work for, but it is to challenge our assumptions and thinking around how long things need to take simply because our calendar dictates it. 
So in the end, are there more opportunities to align this type of accelerated research with the velocity of policymaking? Close this out, Tina. Yes, absolutely. I I 100% think we can do that. And I mean, especially now you think with policies being proposed by presidential candidates and new policies as they're proposed by policymakers at all levels, city, state, local, other forms of local government, that gathering experts from across centers here at Urban, putting them in a room for a day and trying to answer questions or think critically about these different things that are being proposed before they even hit the actual policy, I think would be really good. So we should do it more. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things to remember. One, the traditional research process moves deliberately and with good reason to ensure quality and accuracy, but a lengthy process can lead to findings that are less useful than they would have been when the question was first asked. Two, it's worth experimenting with innovative research processes like our research-a-thon to test out what we can and can't do in shorter, more accelerated timelines. Speeding up the research process and fostering collaboration among researchers could lead to more responsive, real-time analysis. And three, our researchathon delivered some interesting findings. Spatial mismatch was real in the cities we explored, as households in public and assisted housing tended to live farther away from good job opportunities than other households on average. So that's our show. Thanks again to Brett Theodos and Tina Stacy. To read the paper from the researchathon or a related blog, check out our show notes at www.urban.org slash critical value. And thanks to all you fantastic critical value listeners. We truly appreciate it. Please take a second to leave a rating on iTunes or write a review. It helps others to find the show. And if you have any comments or questions, you can always email us at criticalvalue@urban.org. Big thank you to producers Rob Abair and Jacinth Jones. And thanks to our sound editor, Riley Byrne from podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off.